Halloween. And Joel and I were putting together a little tongue-in-cheek message. Joel, you might have received a text on your phone from Joel this week that reminded us a little bit of the history of Halloween. On October 31st this year, statistically, it shows, according to modern trends, more Americans will celebrate Halloween. Halloween paraphernalia is up 15% this year. Statistically, it's estimated more Americans will celebrate Halloween this year than Easter for the first time in our history. Now, I'm not here to condemn someone for dressing up and eating candy. Well, what does that trend tell us? Is there room for repentance by that measure? Is there room for repentance? I was thinking about that as a stone struck. I was also thinking about the anthropological history. If you look back at the origins of Halloween itself, you can trace it back, I'm told by people who know history better than I, all the way to Day of the Dead ceremonies in most pagan cultures that are a sort of nostalgic, over-the-shoulder look at kids the lots of life that celebrate with a certain fascination the world that was before the flood. That is, pagan cultures celebrated death and had a fascination with the unfettered, extroverted depravity that was encompassing this nation prior to God's providential hand in the greatest storm that, that humankind will ever know at the Great Flood. All of a sudden, these events started coming together in my mind. Aaron's message, Hurricane Sandy, the fact that the last warning of the storm itself occurred on Halloween this year, and that is going to be followed in just days by a national election in which we will choose the figureheads of our state and which all parties tell us that will be the most effectual way to ensure our future. And I wonder if we have forgotten our God, do not beseech his great mercy and bow with trembling hearts before his throne when we experience an event like this week where we take more refuge in our vote being cast on Tuesday than we do that God could just as easily flatten this nation in a single storm. I hope this message demonstrates to some degree how the ancient and sufficient Word of God, the Word of God Almighty, can synthesize thoughts like these and events like we've experienced this last week, this dramatic week, in a way that makes sense of them according to His truth, gives glory to Him, and gives hope for us in the end. With that, I have an introductory statement that we can take from Psalm 18, chapter, chapter 18, verses 1 through 19. I'll say this at least twice here and probably close with it as well. Consider this statement. If we do not maintain a disposition of the soul capable of recognizing God's candy in blessing and judgment, if we do not maintain a disposition of the soul capable of recognizing God's hand in blessing and judgment, and in so doing, we fully endorse his conditions for favor, even as we discern conditions that warrant his wrath, we will be blindsided by the day of the Lord. If our soul, putting it more succinctly, cannot recognize God's purposes in blessing and in judgment, we will be blindsided by the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a scriptural term that refers to God's recurring visitation when balances are leveled according to his terms of justice and they're metered out by his sovereign hand and they include things like nations overrunning other nations, great and bad 
winds can weather, that upset the plans of men and nations, the purposes of humanistic mankind, and set it right the fear of the people to tremble once again at the God of all the universe. That is the day of the Lord. Scripture tells us that the ultimate day of the Lord will come at the end of this eschaton and is spoken of in such fearful and ultimate, declarative, powerful terms that the language of even Psalm 18 pales in comparison to the sweeping imagery of Revelation as we read that the blood of those who are justly trampled in God's wine press of wrath will reach the bridal height of the horses. It's shocking to think of yourself or a nation being on the wrong side of his justice, being on the receiving end of his judgments when the day of the Lord finally, ultimately, and absolutely comes. Here in Psalm 18, David has found himself on the right side. He has found himself in God's favor. In later weeks, we'll discover the conditions that David recognized that gave him that kind of assurance. Suffice it to say, for the purpose of this message, we'll let ourselves be shaken in our boots a bit. As we look and see how powerful our God is, and see what we can learn from David's assessment of even the forces of nature in relationship to the power that he commands. I'll give you a heading for a few points. Elements of David, or let's explore the following elements of nature, underscoring David's victorious soul. Elements of nature, underscoring David's victorious soul. And those elements of nature, Lord willing, will couple with parallel concepts in Scripture. I wouldn't want us to leave this psalm thinking that this is poetic language and less concrete than it might appear at first glance. I also want to use other scripture to underscore the fact that God is indeed Lord of the weather. He serves the right to execute his judgments with the forces of nature as the extension of his hand has, will, and is doing so this day, Old Testament, and new, and in the future. First of all, we read in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 6, a great confession of faith and confidence in the Lord. David begins, I love you, O Lord, my strength. We'll read the second verse. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assail me, the cords of shale entangle me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. After the cry for righteousness and for God to execute his judgments in a just way and to vindicate his purposes, in history and for his own. After that cry reaches our Heavenly Father's ears, and he has determined that it is his perfect time to execute accordingly as he did in David's circumstances, in finally routing the opposition, namely Saul, the kingdom that had grown wicked and had opposed God's anointed. God does the following, and that's verses 7 all the way 
verse, verse 7 and 8. Then the earth reeled. Remember, I cried to him, and my voice reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Another event that happened to me this week, I had just quote by happenstance, unquote, accidentally, quote unquote, downloaded a message, a podcast from one of my favorite preachers, those of Warcraft 3, Dalsian Presbyterian Church, and it was an overview of the book of Nam. I just listened to it as I was doing some cabinetry work and whatnot on the job. And he said this of the book of Nam, that the theme of the book as he discerned going over and over it was this, that the wrath of God is the salvation of his people. The wrath of God is the salvation of his people. The wrath of God is not a popular concept in most preaching today, I'm sure. The wrath of God is not something that will likely grow if we emphasize it to the degree that David does, that Nahum does, and the entire Word of God does. It's not necessarily a pro-growth model to expand the population of our church here. Nevertheless, it is a reality. And if we don't preach the wrath of God, as Scripture calls us to do so, we are in violation of something far worse than not tickling people's ears. We are in violation of the holiness of God. I would invite you to turn to the book of Nahum, actually. I'd like to just read another psalm for you. In the book of Nahum, the history is such that Nineveh, who had repented at first, has now grown apostate again and is deserving of judgment. Uh, the prophet speaks against the horrors that he exhibits and unrighteous wickedness and depravity all around him. And he opens his book with an oracle of judgment. Verse 1, an oracle of chapter 1 concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Listen to this song, and this is a hymn, another song. This is a song that's meant to be sung in worship, admiration, and glorify, to glorify the attributes of our God. Verse 3, 2. The Lord is jealous and is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, the shot of carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. That earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. With an overflowing flood, he will make the complete end of his adversaries and will pursue.
pursue his enemies into darkness. Point number one, elements of nature underscore David's victorious soul. This is true at the beginning of Nahum as well. David understands forces of nature as implements of divine wrath. David understands that forces of nature are implements of divine wrath. That is, they're weapons, tools, extensions of the arm of God to meter out justice at his perfect timing, though he's long-suffering when he sees fit. As you recall the history of Nineveh, by God's mercy, they had repented. But at this point, they had rejected the truth and understanding they had first knew. And if you want a picture of the society of Nahum's day that Nineveh represented, I think it's well summed up in this quote by Study Bible, R.C. School writes, Nineveh was a wicked, imperialistic, and deceitful metropolis, with an arrogant and unscrupulous lust for power and domination, manifested in merciless warmongering. In addition to its military exploits, Nineveh was condemned for its ruthless trade practices and insatiable materialism. Nineveh was wicked, imperialistic, deceitful metropolis, arrogant, unscrupulous, merciless, a lust for domination, ruthless practices of war, insatiable materialism. As we read that list, I think only a blind fool would not admit, at least to some degree in principle, as we assess the character of our nation and certainly its trajectory, we are guilty of much of the same. How long will God endure with the wicked land? And at what point will righteousness cry out for vindication? And at what point will the very forces of nature be assembled in his hands as the implements of divine wrath to answer the cry that finally reaches ears in his perfect time to execute it, and the earth then reels and rocks, and the foundations and the mountains tremble and quake because he is angry. The forces of nature are implements of divine wrath. I mentioned the theme of Nam, and it can well be said the theme of the first 19 verses of Psalm 18. I think the wrath of God is the salvation of his people. Notice how contrast to the horrible circumstances, the terrifying circumstances around him, David had never been more secure. David had felt that his wits had he had cried out in desperation in many psalms before this, and he labored over them. He had been he had embraced the life of a fugitive, mandatory fugitive. He had been running away from the powers that be, but finally, when the forces of nature itself were conspiring with God Almighty to do the, to do the work and the overcoming victorious power, uh, to do the triumphal work that David's mighty men could only do in part, he finally could relax and say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. And believer in this room, if you have a confidence in your walk with Jesus Christ, that no matter how the earth shakes and trembles and the heavens bow and come down, your life is secure in Him, you can have the same confidence. I only want us to be inspired to move beyond just the confidence 
also this fearful notion that if we don't announce these truths to others, that there will be many caught in the wake of judgment who will be unwittingly swallowed up in the next natural disaster. If we don't repent of our ruthless and deceitful ways, of our unscrupulous lust for power, of our insatiable materialism, and of our quest for domination through military means and the whims and schemes of man, and never bow in fear before the Lord. Imagine yourself reading this psalm from a soul's perspective. It's one thing to put yourself in David's shoes. It's another thing to see yourself on the receiving end of an earth that would reel and rock and quake with the judgmental power of the Almighty God behind it, exercised against those who would oppose His will. It must have seemed, seemed indeed to Paul that the forces of nature themselves were conspiring together in the war room, in the situation room of heaven, in the celestial halls of God's ultimate sovereign purposes, to conspire against this plan and try as he might with all of the technology at his disposal. There was no way he was able to retain even a sound mind, let alone assure himself of his own kingdom. And that man eventually fell on his own sword in the shame of, lo of loss on the battlefield. Point number two, David recognizes the following in the forces of nature. Psalm 18, verses 9 through 11 demonstrate to us that David understands the forces of nature. He understands them as vestments, that is, garments that clothe God in an official sense of divine holiness. David understands forces of nature as vestments, the uniform, if you will, or that which God clothes himself with as distinct to his character, vestments of divine holiness. If you watch the news, you will never find on the Weather Channel these days any description of the events before you that will lend itself to the fear of God at all. I have one quote that I wrote down for you. There was a blog that was written by a National Geographic author, and he was describing the memory of Hurricane Sandy. And he postulated that this, this storm will be remembered. He said Hurricane Sandy will be remembered as a raging freak of nature that became one of the most destructive storms in U.S. history. He says that one day, or for all time, in his perspective, expectation, according to his worldview, and, and betraying his great humanist error, that this hurricane will be remembered as a freak of nature. Are there, is there such a thing as a raging freak of nature? Maybe if there is no God. If there is a God, there is no raging freak of nature. There are no impersonal, inconsequential, you know, events that just happen by happenstance and chance. There is only a sovereign God whose inscrutable wisdom wills to do everything he so sovereignly commands. And this, I submit to you, is the attitude of how just about every media outlet will take this storm. But we have admonition from Psalm 18 to take it otherwise, to take it as a vestment, as a garment, as a uniform of divine holiness, as it were. In Psalm 9 through 11, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. 
exercise of God's great power when we're overwhelmed at the display of his might for seven days? Or is our response more akin to the apostasy of a culture that would say it's just a freak of nature? It's just a weird anomaly, something that cannot be explained, the product of forces and chance and impersonal forces, malevolent things set in the path of humans is just life. No, it is not. It is the cloaking vestments of divine holiness that reminds us that God is powerful and reserves the right to send the wicked soul to hell, even as he has made a way for the justified sinner to be righteous through the blood of his son. David understands the forces of nature as revelatory justice is point number three. He understands that when lightning shines forth, that it is God's justice revealed to the eyes of man. And in that sense, it's a great mercy. God doesn't ask us to just have blind faith. He asks us to look at nature and to see that we are without excuse. And when we see the forces of nature alive at his command, we can recognize lightning as a revelation of his justice. This happened again at Sinai. Again, the elements themselves bow the knee at the Lord's command. We see this in Exodus 19, 16 through 20. We see it in 1 Kings 18, 38 through 40, when a fire comes out of heaven and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah had prepared. At that particular juncture, the elements themselves gave up their properties and bowed their knees to God. The fire licked up the water, and it was destroyed along with everything flammable. At that particular juncture, it didn't go well for the 400-some prophets of Baal, who demonstrably were shown to be futile, foolish, and wicked, opposing such a power, thinking that by dancing around and mumbling things of their own design and cutting themselves and making an impressive show to the people on their you know, metal blazing the altar with the heaping sacrifice that they could pretend to have any power. They could have fooled the country, but they would never fool Almighty God. Let us not be fooled by the false prophets of our day. But let us look at the very forces of nature that announce the divine power of our God and His revelatory justice and say to this wicked world, repent, or you will likewise perish. Let us be so moved if we watch the news and see that swirling cyclone of cloud that covers thousands of square miles and touches millions of people. When we see that picture of the news, let us have an experience and call attention to our emotions to bow before the almighty power of God, to pause just a moment at least and ask him that he would overwhelm us with the weight of his glory and his power to judge. If we were so moved by these things, we would be less likely to be quiet as Christians. We would be more bold to announce that our God reigns. If we saw the forces of nature as vestiges of His glory, as cloaks that describe and define His holiness and power, that teach us something, a glimpse of His inscrutable yet revelatory justice, it would move us, move us to pray and to move in anguish before the throne of God and plead that He would have mercy. On our land. David understands the forces of nature also as a stage for the scope of divine power. A stage for the scope of divine power. He has said in verses 12 through 14, out of the brightness be 
stones and coals. This is Psalm 18. A fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And then in verse 15, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. And your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This verse has moved me to write that David understands the forces of nature are a stage for the scope of his divine power. The Lord rebukes, and the seas are still. The Lord commands, and the waves are to create a path for the redeemed people to walk with the favor of God. That'll be obedient to bring the land's foot on the doorsteps across the Red Sea. You remember how God routed his enemies at that juncture in the redemptive history? The waters again in his command closed in with such a force of the most powerful imperial army of the day, the Egyptian soldiers, whose chariots gleamed in the evening sun, that there wasn't so much of a, as a cry of victory heard from any one of their lips before they all were gargling on water and drowned. And to this day, some remnant of those chariots remains as testimony to God's almighty power at the bottom of the Red Sea. When God seeks to show himself great and make his power known, he does such things. And he records it in scripture for us to remember and proclaim. For us to take notice and to champion that he is Lord of the weather. And the scope of his power is seen when he had different points of his choosing supernaturally. He supernaturally intervenes even in the forces of nature and, and works such great displays of his power as to part the Red Sea and enclose it on his enemies. Or to cause the fountains of the great deep to spring forth and then to bring down a rainstorm of such torrent that it took but 40 days for this world to be engulfed in water. The breadth and the scope of God's judging power, of the power that he retains, of the righteousness that he demands is made known in his lordship over the forces of nature. Thus I know it was in David's mind in these Old Testament stories when he writes, the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare that you revealed the Lord at the blast of your nostrils. David understands the forces of nature. Speak more than just things that happen. Created an interesting new story and dominated the cycle for a while. They're there for us to consider the greatness of our God. I wrote down just a few items that I witnessed on a blog that were giving me the timeline of this hurricane that hit our shores of the East Coast this week. There's some interesting accounts, journalistic observations of the events that were happening in the weather this last week. Unusual configuration of weather factors is converging, and meteorologists warn that the storm will likely morph into a powerful hybrid superstorm. In days go by, grows worse. The predictions in the computer models appear more and more devastating. Inspiring recording like this, a high-pressure cold front to the north will 
force the major storm to take a sharp turn and head toward major cities like Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York City, with winds covering a thousand square miles. This is the same law which opened with this storm will always be remembered as a raging freak of nature. How ironic is it the precision of the recording that describes all those last days the storm had a mind of its own and a GPS system that set its coordinates to the heart and soul of American society. You would ask anybody, pop quiz, where is the heart and soul of America? Is there a city that represents us? What would it be? New York City, of course. The Big Apple, after all, starts spreading the news and so on. All these associations culturally come to our mind when we think of the cultural center, the epicenter of America. And as if this hurricane had a GPS system, you can watch on the news, it took a hard left right at the New York Harbor. On October 29th, Sandy made its expected sharp turn towards the northwest on a path through the coast of New Jersey. At this time, some 50 million people had already been affected with high winds and drenching rain from Washington, D.C., northward. There's a quote from Keith Blackwell, a meteorologist. He says, and I quote, You just don't see this kind of stuff. It's so strong and so large. Normally protected areas like New York Harbor and Long Island are seeing the worst case scenario. Goes on with a more scientific explanation of what exactly was going on. A cycle of strongest winds and highest storm surge are on the front and right of its circulation because the power of the storm's strongest winds is combined with its forward motion. New York Harbor receives this part of Sandy's impact, arriving at high tide and full moon creating maximum storm surges, nearly 14 feet high, setting a new record and topping the sea walls in lower Manhattan. This is the hand of our Almighty God. Scripture demands that I say this. I should be fearful not to say so. Yet today we're afraid to attribute the power of God to track of a devastating storm. Why? Perhaps we have a concept of God in our head that doesn't exactly line up or even close, perhaps, with who he's declared to be in the scripture. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration does not issue its final advisory on the storm until Halloween, October 31st. By this time, the death toll in the U.S. had reached 109 people and had incurred an excess of $50 billion in estimated damage. And here we have this storm finally coming to rest, and the devastation laid bare before us on the very day that for some strange reason we still in pagan fashion and now to greater percentage and we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as a society pay some sort of cultural homage to a day of the dead that celebrated the extroverted depravity of the pre-Diluvian world, the world that was deserving of the ultimate weather event in judgment. And it would be heresy for me to get up here and say that this 
was all coincidence. Psalm 18 demands that we attribute to our holy God the power of nature. Now, when we consider all these things and we take them in light of Scripture, what is our appropriate response? Well, for David and for Nahum, it was the part of our worship song. It was the inspiration for songs for him to offer to the Almighty. What an interesting thought that is. Now, how could David do so with joy in his heart? And certainly there's other sections of Scripture where great laments are brought. And it is appropriate to feel anguish, angst, and pain at the plight of those who sinners like us might incur the wrath of God and we should spare no pains to cry out in anguish before them, but we should sacrifice nothing of the Lord's glory when we see evidence of His judgment as we cry out in anguish for lost souls and even our own plight. I believe David represents his heart well in this psalm. And at the beginning, in verses 1 through 6, and at the close of our text in verses 16 through 19, David understands that favor with the Lord of the weather is his security. Let's go back over these reassuring words. I love you, O Lord, verse 1, by strength. The Lord is my rock. And notice the juxtaposition of David's security to the tumult all around. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the
Lord, and I'm going to be proud of the things that you've been doing. 